Good afternoon, everyone. It is now 5 o'clock here at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. You are listening to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. In this program, the CFRC news team welcomes new guests from the Queen's University community and covers news, issues, upcoming and recent events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's University students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome. Here are your top news headlines by Erica Singh, CFRC Campus News Liaison. Hi, my name is Erica Singh and welcome to your Campus News. Today I have two very special guests joining me in studio to talk about the last night of the Cabaret Solitaire. Here are Kimmy and Olivia. I'm Olivia and I'm a third year music theatre student here at Queen's uh, and I am a character or a host, if you will. I'm a part of the cast in this show. And my name is Kimmy. I am also a third year music theater student here at Queen's, and I am the assistant director and choreographer for the show. All right. So, The Last Night at the Cabaret Solitaire is described as an original musical comedy packed with killer vocals, hilariously dumb jokes, and a wild dance numbers. Is there anything special you can share about the show? And can you please talk a little bit more about what the show is? Yeah, for sure. So the last night of the Cabaret Solitaire, to start with the Cabaret Solitaire, is just this wildly eccentric, like beautiful place where people can just be who they want to be. It's kind of like a world that we know, but it's also a world that we don't know. So it's like, um, it's just a place where people can come be who they really are. And I think what's super special about that is our whole cast and everyone they're coming as themselves, but not not themselves. It's a, it's a big joke in the show, and you'll only get it if you come, so you definitely should. Are there any special moments that people must see in the show which you can share? I, w- I would say that um, if you're a Queen student or not a Queen student, there's some inside jokes, but also general jokes. It's, kind of, it's the kind of show where there's something for everyone. You might laugh, you might cry. But you kind of have to see it for yourself, so you got to come. You got to come watch. Once again, make sure to check out the last night of the Cabaret Solitaire. Tickets are on sale right now at the Dan School website. Tickets for November 9th are pay what you can, but for the rest of the shows from November 10th to the 19th, tickets are $15 for Queen students and $25 for adults. Next, here are some headlines. Queens has received a groundbreaking $100 million donation from alumnus Stephen Smith. The generous contribution has prompted the renaming of the faculty to the Stephen J.R. Smith School of Engineering. Smith, who had previously donated $50 million to the Queen's School of Business, believes in the power of education to address pressing global issues, especially in the face of challenges like climate change. The newly rebranded Smith School of Engineering at Queen's is committed to providing an interdisciplinary, problem-solving approach to education, focusing on real-world issues. The transformation aims to create a more realistic and authentic learning experience for students, emphasizing not only technical but also social implications. Furthermore, this initiative seeks to recruit a diverse group of students to fill the 850 annual spots at Queen's Engineering offering a global learning opportunity to students. The significant donation will fund a new faculty, equipment, and other necessary resources, ultimately benefiting students immediately. 
Student input and participation are integral to shaping this new approach to engineering, ensuring a strong sense of empathy and care, particularly in the light of the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change. In the words of Principal Dean, this transformative gift from Stephen Smith will equip the next generation of students with the knowledge, skills, and mindset to drive positive change worldwide. Next, Queen's Fall Preview took place last Saturday, November 4th. Hundreds of prospective students toured the campus and heard from specific faculties and current students. In case you missed the in-person fall preview, visit queensu.ca slash admission slash fall dash preview dash open dash house to register for upcoming webinars on the admission process. In other news, Alvi, the beloved golden squirrel that is often seen roaming around Summer Hill, has unfortunately passed away in an accident last Thursday. In the final message by Queensu underscore Alvi sightings, Queen's students are encouraged to bask in Alvi's legacy by living life in the spotlight. The Queen's community came together during this difficult time and we hope that Alvi will forever live on in our hearts. That's all for campus news today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Erica. Coming up in recent Queen's University news, a team of researchers from Queen's University and Environment and Climate Change Canada have shown that accelerated 21st century warming has triggered a striking shift in algal composition in Great Slave Lake, indicating that North America's deepest lake is entering a new ecological state. With us to chat about this groundbreaking research is Kathleen Ruland, lead author and a senior research scientist at Queen's Paleo Ecological Environmental Assessment and Research lab also known as the pearl lab all right so uh welcome to cfrc thanks for joining us thank you i'm glad to be here kathleen tell us about yourself and your role as a researcher with the pearl lab well my job as a research scientist at pearl i think is quite wonderful uh my research focuses on sedimentary fossil records particularly microscopic algae, and these are from the bottom of lakes, and I use those to understand how conditions have changed over time, often the past few hundred years or so, in response to different kinds of environmental stressors. And I'm really fortunate to be able to work with so many great scientists at Pearl and also involved with many different interesting projects with lots of amazing students. And I've also collaborated with a variety of excellent researchers outside of Pearl with some amazing opportunities to study lakes from different parts, uh, exciting parts of the world. But I have to say one of my greatest interests has always been researching lakes in the north. That's since my graduate studies on subarctic lakes in Canada's northern tree line. Getting back to uh, the uh, the media release and and the work, the recent work of the Pearl Lab, I'd like to learn more from you, Kathleen, about algal communities and their place in the ecosystem. Tell us more about these. Well, that's a great question. So most people wonder, well, why would anyone want to study algae of all things? Who really cares? But, you know, lakes and oceans around the world are just teeming with these very tiny, very diverse, very abundant microscopic organisms that are naked to the human eye. And I don't think many people even know they exist. Yet these small little invisible forms of life support the rest of the food chain. So these they support microscopic animals like zooplankton that feed on mm -hmm. them. And they in turn are food for aquatic insects or small fish and so on up the food chain. So... 
An important type of microscopic algae are diatoms, and that's what I'm interested in. And they're made up, their cell walls are made up of silica or glass. So diatoms are extremely species rich. There's many, many different kinds of species, and they're part of the phytoplankton or periphyton that make up the base of the food web in aquatic ecosystems. So we call those primary producers. They use the sun's energy to photosynthesize. So they are the food for organisms that are higher up on the food web, like consumers. And because they're on the bottom of the food chain, they often are the first to respond to an environmental change before other levels of the food chain um, really, we really see a response there. So diatoms, they might be really tiny, but they're very important. So a change in the structure in these tiny little organisms is a sign that the entire food web is is changing. Oh, wow. Wow. So now Great Slave Lake, the Pearl Lab uh, has done its recent work in Great Slave Lake as a primary research site. Tell us a little bit more about Great Slave Lake and, and why it was chosen as a site for your, for your study compared to, say, other smaller, shallower lakes in the Arctic region. Right. Well, Great Slave Lake is the deepest lake in North America, and it's the fourth largest in Canada. Yet, Canada's large northern lakes are highly understudied relative, for example, the Laurentian Great Lakes in more southern latitudes. So we really have a limited understanding of how these very large northern Great Lakes like Great Slave Lake will respond to climate change. In fact, uh, the late David Schindler, who's a very famous or well-known Canadian limnologist from the University of Alberta, in a 2001 paper said that there's a clear lack of scientific research on even the basic limnological conditions in Canada's northern Great Lakes. And he called that a national disgrace. So he wasn't really one to mince words. And that led to this call for renewed efforts to better understand these important ecosystems. So... Our lab's past research has shown that small and medium-sized lakes in the Arctic and subarctic are really responsive to climate warming, and, and the biota of those lakes are showing these big shifts. So we have longer and warmer ice-free periods, we have reduced wind speed, so these changing conditions affect the physical properties of the lake that these biota live in. Mm -hmm. However... Yeah, so if we talk about those little small and medium-sized lakes, then we now look at these huge, um, well, I would call Great Slave Lake a huge northern lake. It has more extensive ice cover much of the year. So this kind of um, creates a bit of a buffer, a great buffer from the full impact of climate warming and a kind of thermal inertia. And up until the last few decades, um, the Arctic now is warming about three to four times greater than the rest of the globe. And, you know, so we, we thought, okay, if this is happening at such a great rate and we see these other changes, at what point will some of these larger northern lakes start to show the same kind of um, response or crossing that ecological threshold? And that's one of the reasons we thought we'd come and have a look at um, some of the paleo, uh, some of the sediment cores from Great Slave Lake. It's a great opportunity. Now, can we hear more about the day-to-day -day? Uh, as, you know, somebody who spends a lot of time doing radio, I don't get to be in a field actually conducting the kind of research <laughs> you do. I wonder for the benefit of our audiences, if you can paint a picture of what it looks like to do the research, uh, do your collections, do the experimentations that you're doing in order to actually undertake, uh, undertake your research. 
what does the research look like in practice? Right. Well, if we're collecting cores from smaller um, Arctic and subarctic lakes, that has its own challenges. But in a very large lake like Great Slave Lake, we were really fortunate to be able to collaborate with um, scientists from uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada, Marlene Evans and her team. And so in terms of the field work, if you're going to such a big lake, so for example, Great Slave Lake is really massive it's very deep it's as big as belgium um if you want to put that in more canadian context it's at its longest about 500 kilometers would be almost as far as traveling from montreal to toronto at its widest it would be almost as far as traveling from here in kingston to ottawa but at its deepest uh, 614 meters is where it's the deepest in that lake that's greater than the height of the the cn tower so it's a massive lake. So taking sediment cores from that kind of a large basin, it's really challenging during the open water season. So it's very windy. It's difficult to get the team out there. So sediment cores were collected when the lakes were completely frozen over. So that way you could use ice as a stable platform to retrieve our cores. So they would go out there and you'd first, you'd use an auger to drill a hole mm -hmm. through the ice. Over, over a meter deep ice and, you know, usually pretty cold and windy conditions. But, and then through that hole, we would drop a coring device, let's say, um, you know, a gravity coring device that would be lowered slowly to the bottom of the lake. And um, that's where all the sediment accumulates. And for a good visual for that, we often use um, to describe how we collect these sediment samples would be if you put a straw in a thick milkshake and then you put your thumb over the top of the straw and pull the straw out, you get this core of your milkshake. So that's very much what we're doing with the sediment at the bottom of the lake. We retrieve this vertical section of the lake's bottom sample. And then once you retrieve that, you would then divide that, that sediment core into fine um, intervals on site usually. And then once we have that core sliced up into these intervals, we would then date those intervals and then we would start to look at all the uh, wonderful um, proxies or environmental indicators that are preserved in that sediment core. So we we're able to go back thousands of years but in this case for Great Slave Lake we were interested in looking at the past 200 years or so. Indeed, indeed and why the past 200 years? That's really where we're focusing on the um, anthropogenic stressors and um, climate change. So, you know, things have really started to to accelerate, especially in the last two decades or so in terms of Arctic warming. So 200 years really gives us a nice time frame in terms of before and after um, some of the, the most um, the largest responses we'll see to anthropogenic activities. You recently told the Queen's Gazette that such a pronounced change at the base of the food chain, as your team has uh, discovered, is a clear indication that Great Slave Lake is entering a new ecological regime. So I wonder if you can uh, break it down and tell us more uh, about the results of your team's research at Great Slave Lake. If, if Algil communities restructuring, for example, has occurred resulting in declining ice cover, what does this mean in the context of climate change? 
Right, so with warming, we are seeing a reduction in ice cover or a reduction in the period of ice cover or when the ice comes off and on the lake. And that gives us a longer period for these diatoms or algae to, to grow, so to photosynthesize. And we can get that signal in um, our sedimentary ar archives. So Great Slave Lake is very interesting and exciting lake to study for a lot of reasons. In terms of being a northern lake, there has actually been a fair amount of studies undertaken, um, nothing compared to the type of research that we're doing in more temperate regions, but we do have detailed limnological surveys from this lake, starting with D.S. Rawson from the University of Saskatchewan, who um, during the 40s and 50s really spent several years collecting and examining phytoplankton at various locations across Great Slave Lake. And, you know, he actually did an accounting of diatoms through the lake. So that's really exciting, you know, for someone like me, a diatom nerd, that there's actually an accounting of diatoms going back to the 40s and 50s. But since his earlier studies, there's been a couple of brief surveys on the lake in the 1980s, and then again in 1994 and five by our co-author, um, Marlene Evans. And um, so, this presented us with this great opportunity to compare the diatom assemblages from our sediment cores with the historical phycological surveys and use that as a kind of ground truthing. So what we found was that these historical accounts of diatom composition from the 40s, 50s, 1980s and 90s was a great match. It really matched well with our sedimentary records. So for example, based on our sediment records, Great Slave Lake diatom assemblages were dominated by um, a relatively large, heavy diatom. It's called Alagasyra islandica, and that diatom has been um, dominating the assemblages across Great Slave Lake for about the past 200 years. Now, these diatoms are shaped like a a tin can. So they're really large, they're really heavy in terms of uh, when you compare them to other tiny diatoms. So this large species was, species was also the most dominant taxon reported in all those, uh, the three limnological surveys in the past and in our, uh, the cores that were collected in the 1990s. But in our more recent sediment cores, since about the 21st century or so, we're seeing a really pronounced change in the composition of diatom communities for the first time. We're now seeing these little tiny, um, small centric diatoms. They're called Discostella species for the most part. There's a few other taxa as well. And they're only about two to five micrometers um, in, 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 in length. And so we're, we haven't seen those before in the surveys. We haven't seen them before in the cores. So they now dominate the diatom assemblages since the 21st century. And that's a real sign that there's a big shift here. And that's, you know, something is changing in, in Great Slave Lake for the first time in the past 200 years. Okay, so Kathleen, this is all extremely fascinating, and boy, oh boy, I bet you have a lot of fun uh, and uh, with your team doing Absolutely. the work that you do. Uh, but in day-to-day -day knowledge for the average person who is not a paleolimnologist or biologist, or <laughs> what does the, what does all this mean? Yeah, so these diet because diatoms are photosynthetic organisms, a large diatom like Alcasara, um it usually needs to stay in the water column that's 
well mixed or turbulent. So it needs turbulent conditions to keep them in the upper part of the lake. So that's where there's enough light so they can photosynthesize, especially in a deep lake like Great Slave Lake. But with warmer temperatures, longer ice-free periods, reduced wind speed, the lake's getting warmer. There's longer growing seasons for algae with more time to photosynthesize. And the warmer the water and the weaker the mixing of the water column leads to a more thermally stable water column. So these physical changes in the water column, we don't see them, you know, when you're looking at the lake, but they have a big impact on these tiny microscopic algae. So for example, these new conditions are ideal growing conditions for the smaller pancake-shaped diatoms that I call discostella species. Because of their small shape, they have a large surface area to volume ratio compared to these previously dominated, dominant larger species, Alicosira species. And that means that they're more buoyant and they can stay afloat when the uh, water column is is mixing less and stronger, stronger thermal stratification, whereas these large diatoms tend to sink out and um, in these conditions. And that they tend to just leave the um, competitive arena, so to speak. They're still there, but now these small little diatoms are more prolific, and that's what dominates those uh, the sediments in the past few decades. So we've seen the same type of diatom compositional shift in our previous research in the smaller and medium-sized Arctic and subarctic lakes, um, as well as documented a well-documented response to warming in hundreds of lakes worldwide. And now we're seeing the same shift in this very large lake, Great Slave Lake in the Arctic, in the subarctic. So what surprised, it was a bit surprising to see that signal in this lake. So it's a real indication that we're now entering a new limnological regime in response to accelerated Arctic warming since, especially since the 21st century. All right, thank you. And now, while the Queen's Gazette also talked about uh, impacts for Indigenous communities and commercial enterprises, including fisheries, uh, uh, as yet appear unknown uh, based on your research findings, do you have any sense of other changes that continued warming might right. have on Great Slave Lake and the, and its and the Great Slave Lake littoral? Right. So. That, of course, is a pretty hard question to answer without a lot more research, but we know that currently Great Slave Lake is the biggest commercial, recreational, and indigenous freshwater fishery in the Northwest Territory, and importantly, approximately 60% of the population of the Northwest Territories lives around Great Slave Lake. So this is a really vital resource for the Northwest Territories, and of course, it's important to mm -hmm. better understand how accelerated warming is going to affect the great, this Great Lake and the communities that depend on it. So I think we can definitely say there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. So we know that longer and warmer ice-free seasons have led to greater primary production on Great Slave Lake. There's been a recent study, um, a NASA-funded study, looking at remote sensing where we see a real increase in overall algal production on Great Slave Lake in the past 16 years. So you know, a lar an increase in per the algal production would likely benefit some types of fish species. And warming is, is definitely, you know, it's fishes that are adapted to warmer waters, whereas it, it will not be so beneficial for cold water adapted fish species. It's also, you know, possible that native fish species could be replaced by new species. Again, um, really hard to tell without a lot more research. But I think 
you know, any change in the quality or nature of the food at the bottom of the food chain, these algal species will definitely have some sort of cascading effects up to um, up to the fishes. So it's just another sign that change of changes from accelerated warming um, are, are having on this lake. So there's probably other things that we could look at too. Um, mm -hmm. So the same conditions that I just talked about that are ideal for these small little diatoms to, to proliferate um, are also the same conditions that would promote algal blooms, for example. So I know we heard a lot about algal blooms in many lakes in southern regions. So, but blue-green algal blooms were generally thought to be limited to southern latitudes as the species that people really worry about, those that cause the blooms at the surface of the lake, these cyanobacteria are, they're quite sensitive to colder temperatures and to short open water growing periods that's uh, typical of Arctic and subarctic lakes. So these cold conditions would typically restrict their growth in northern lakes. However, what's interesting or, you know, not only interesting, maybe a little scary, is that in the past 10 years or so, there's been reports of algal blooms on Great Slave Lake, but that's typically near the shorelines, including Yellowknife Bay. So mm -hmm. for these blooms to occur requires the right combination of nutrients, temperature conditions, and the stable and low turbulent conditions or less mixing that we found during thermal stratification with warmer conditions. So again, those are the same conditions that would really um, those small tiny diatoms would dominate would prefer those kind of conditions. So again that's another sign that primary producers of this iconic Canadian Great Lake has entered a new limnological re regime in response to accelerated warming. So I don't think that Great Slave Lake is going to be one big algal bloom not but you know it's something to keep an eye on especially near the shorelines of of these lakes. So so, you know, conditions like temperature and ice cover, these are all things that play a major role in shaping northern lakes as we know them. And now we're seeing these accelerated changes from warming or accelerated warming, and that could affect the whole structure and function of these aquatic ecosystems. Mm. Uh, well, thank you very much for that. It sounds like the research that has been produced can be mobilized in so many other uh, fields, whether it's within uh, a scientific discipline specifically, like biology and ecology and paleolimnology, <laughs> but also, uh, you know, uh, for folks that are um, thinking about what what the impacts might be on the more social scale for communities nearby, but also economic impacts as well. That if if things continue to decline, for example, what happens to the fisheries? What happens to the populations? Uh, so it sounds like there's a lot of uh, really interesting research that can continue moving forward based on the findings from the Pearl Lab. That's right, and so this is a, a really good example of um, you know this. What we're seeing here is a good indication that other things are happening. So it's kind of a call to really um, get out there and do more research on a more holistic level. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and the big changes we're seeing here is, again, it's an early warning sign. And I think that's a real good way to kind of push the research in that direction. 
And, you know, we do have more plans. My co-authors and I have some plans in the works to continue our study on Great Slave Lake. It's a huge lake and there's lots of different things to um, look at. So we're going to expand our sampling, for example, across the lake, collect more cores and kind of see how this change that we're seeing in the diatoms have progressed. Um, we're also currently working on a series of um, sedimentary diatom records from another iconic um, Great Canadian Northern Lake, Great Bear Lake in the Northwest Territories. So that's really exciting too. So we're in the process of writing that up and making comparisons to Great Slave Lake. And um, I guess in addition to expanding our actual research, I can also, I, you know, I did a lot of, I talked a lot about the diatoms and primary producers, but sediment cores also contain a wealth of other information that we can really tap into and give us a lot more clues on how large northern lakes are changing. So for example, there's other very important ecological indicators from different parts of the food web that also preserve well in sediments. And for example, cladocerans, these are microscopic zooplankton that eat algae like diatoms, and they in turn are an important food source for aquatic insects and so on. So it'd be really interesting if we could um, see whether the ch we, see, we also see a change in the communities of what we're you know, these primary consumers. So how do they change in relative to the diatoms? So this will give us a, a better understanding of bottom-up effects on um, and another piece of information to see whether how climate change has affected the food webs of these large northern lakes. And that's, I'm hoping, where this information will really push uh, research in that direction to look at the overall changes all the way up the food web. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for uh, this wonderful and informative discussion today, folks. We have been chatting with Kathleen Ruland of the Pearl Lab in the Department of Biology here at Queen's University. Thanks for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure chatting and learning from you today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.